The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, take that lampshade off your head and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 408 with guest James Whitaker, recorded live Tuesday, November 25th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Teller, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Data Dynamics. Makers of ActiveReports.net, simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who says, if you can't stand the heat... Move to Connecticut, Carl Franklin. Thank you and Happy New Year. This is Carl Franklin in New London, Connecticut. Richard will be here in a minute for the uh, interview, but I just wanted to wish all of our listeners all over the world a Happy New Year. For those who recognize this as a new year, I realize now that uh, we may have some folks in, in China and listeners elsewhere in the world where they're on a different calendar. But if you are celebrating the new year, happy new year to you. Uh, the intro is short and sweet today. Let's just roll the interview. Our guest today, Richard, is James A. Whitaker, Dr. Whitaker, now a software architect at Microsoft. He has spent his career in software testing, well, was an early thought leader in model-based testing, where his Ph.D. dissertation from the University of Tennessee became a standard reference on the subject. While a professor at Florida Tech, he founded the world's largest academic software testing research center and helped make testing a degree track for undergraduates. Before he left Florida Tech, his research group had grown to over 60 students and faculty and had secured over $12 million in research awards and contracts. During his tenure at FIT, he wrote How to Break Software. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> and the series follow-ups How to Break Software Security with Hugh Thompson and How to Break Web Software with Mike Andrews. His research team also developed the highly acclaimed runtime fault injection tool, Holodeck. 
Dr. Whitaker currently works at Microsoft as an architect for Visual Studio Team System, where he's busy transforming his testing ideas into tools and techniques for developers and testers. He dreams of a future in which software just works. Welcome. See, you couldn't even say that with a straight face. <laughs> laughing already. I, I put that in there just so you'd have to read it. You know, it's funny when you when I came across the title of your book, "How to Break Software." I well, the reason I chuckled is because I used to work at this company where if you wanted your software to break, you just ask Paul to come over and watch you. Say, so, "Hey, Paul, come check this out," and you do a little demo for him, and it breaks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I've had a lot of developers tell me, you know, there's nothing new in this book. We we wrote the software already broken. You're simply <laughs> demoing the features. Yeah, so how do you break software it. is run it? Yeah, how to not <laughs> fix it, maybe. Yeah, that's why it's a short book. It's pretty pretty easy. Shooting fish in a pond or something like that. <laughs> Shooting vice presidents in a duck blind. <laughs> uh, it's been done. Uh, this no. It's not a young book either. That's a few years ago, How to Break Software. You know, it is, and um, it was published, I, I, it was written in the late 90s. I wrote this uh, book really slowly. I mean, I was I was a consultant at the time, you know, professor, and, and trying to make ends meet with consulting and uh, traveling the world, talking to a lot of testers, testing a lot of software, and, and basically taking notes on, you know, the stuff that worked, because one of the things that really annoys me in software testing is you sit... Ten people down in front of a keyboard and say test, and they're going to do they're going to do twelve different things. Right, sure. And and there's not enough methodology. There's not enough you know this body of knowledge that a lot of experts have built up. It's stored in their head, and and that was my first attempt, um, how to break software to to put some of that down in writing. I mean, it really started off as course notes from the courses I taught at Florida Tech. And, uh, you know, there was just a, a big demand for it, so so I published it. So we're obviously talking functional testing, or do you cover the gamut? Yeah, well, that's functional testing. You know, how, how, to, how to take a look at a, you know, an API spec or a, or a, a UI and you know, sort of figure out where the most likely places that the bugs will lurk. I mean, it, it really is a, a book about breaking software. I'm not trying to certify anything i'm not trying to validate functionality i'm trying to i'm trying to find bugs in that book yeah so then then the follow-up was how to break software security where again it was you know it's a it's a hacker's book um and then how to break web software which is is really strongly toward the security end of the spectrum as well must have had a field day with ie6 (laughs) now that i work for microsoft i have no comment about that (laughs) Actually, I don't care who I work for. Yeah, we had a field day. You know, browsers uh, are just, I mean, historically very difficult to get right. I mean, you basically have to be able to expose yourself on any computer on the planet and run any program on the planet. And, uh, yeah, that's where the bugs are. Yeah, it's an open door. Really. It is. It really is. So uh, testing tools have been around for a long time in all sorts of forms developer tools cert, you know standalone testing tools little tools big tools how far back do you go well i wrote my first testing tool in the late 80s um it was a model based testing tool so my my problem was um i wanted to this is a phd problem this is going to sound really ivory tower and pointy hair uh, <laughs> i wanted to be able to measure software reliability i mean with a number right 97% reliable something wow. like that so i knew i needed randomness 
in order to get the statistics thing cranking for me. And I knew I needed very, very large numbers. So, so I did, you know, sort of high volume random testing, but I also wanted the test cases to find bugs. So, so I didn't just do it purely random. Um, in fact, it's funny. I was at a Eurostar last uh, two weeks ago, and I met a guy, a Swedish guy there, who used that tool that I wrote back in 1989. He remembered the name of it. Wow. He remembered how to use it. He claimed to still have a copy. And um, uh, so, yeah, I've been I've been in the tools business for a long time. It's funny though. I come full circle. I mean, I, I really started out believing in. Automation, automation, automation. We need to take the human out of this equation. We just need more test cases. We just need better coverage. And 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 I've totally come full circle. Um, I think Microsoft did it to me because I look at the bugs that we're writing and releasing now, and I just don't see how tools can find a lot of these. These are these are the domain of the manual tester. And so now I'm back full circle promoting manual testing. Don't bugs rise to the level of your competence as a tester? I've heard that before. <laughs> or do, does our competence rise to the level of the bugs? That's I'm true. Not, I'm not yeah. quite right. sure. Uh, and and but yeah, that's that's important because you you've got you've got this human brain that is far more powerful than any tool. I mean, you think of if you think of big bugs that crash software, yeah, tools are going to notice that. But big bugs that just really annoy users or corrupt their work or do things to drive them to the competitor's apps, that's really the domain of the manual tester. You need a brain in the loop. Um, it would be nice if we didn't. It would be nice if people wrote very complete specifications that we could compare against actual behavior. But you know th- th- that's just not the state of affairs. Also complete test suites. Like co- code coverage is kind of a... Uh... A misleading thing because how many you know how many possible different ways are you going to call a method to test it with different kinds of data? Do you know what I'm saying? Z- passing in zeros or negative integers where you expect a positive integer, that kind of thing. You can't possibly cover them all, all the permutations. Well, I actually think well, there's no question that you can't you can't we we really need to stop saying the word complete when we talk about testing in general, or we're just gonna we're just gonna make people think we're bozos. We're just lying to um, ourselves. But, yeah. but but it's even it's even a higher level than that. I mean, what values does a tester choose? You know, is zero really better than minus one? Right. Is four better than four hundred? Should the string length be sixteen characters? Should it be two hundred fifty six characters? I mean, these are the sorts of questions that a lot of new people entering the field of software testing will try to find answers about, and they're not out there. You know, the, 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 so, the software testing theory and practice is locked in the heads of, of some guru practitioners, and it's one of my missions to, to get that stuff out and, and get it known to, to far more testers. It would, I will be happy, you know, in, in my bio, you said I'll be happy when software just works. I'll actually be happy when testing just works. I'll actually be happy when 10 people can be told, test this application, and they test it in very similar ways because they have guiding principles, guiding practices, and guiding theory that they all know and they all understand, and we're not even at that point yet. Wow. 
that's a tough one. You know, one of the concerns I have around testing is that it it, it almost seems like a role that doesn't get a lot of respect in the industry. Like, you, is it if you choose to be a tester, it's because you didn't make it as a developer? Wow, do you really you really think that, Richard? I I just see that in the culture. That I don't think that myself, but I see that in a, as a cultural element that the tester is like a lesser being. So read my blog right now because we are talking about this exact thing uh, in the sense of, you know, how do you get testers promoted fast enough to keep them from becoming developers? And there's a there's a quote uh, from a Microsoft-y. I, I didn't name them because it's, it's sort of MS Dirty Laundry. In fact, I think that's what I named the blog entry. <laughs> uh, because that's what, well, that's what gets blog entries read. Uh, do you know my highest um, uh, read blog entry has the title of, if Microsoft testers are so good, why does your software suck? <laughs> that, that, that's the title that drug in the most, <laughs> the most readers oh, of anything man. I've ever written. So clearly having suck in the title is a, is a good thing. Um, but, but we have this problem at Microsoft. You know, what do we do to, to keep testers there? Because they get up to a certain level in the company, and they hit this glass ceiling, and um, they blame it on test and end up going to development, and there's enough of them that go to development and then look back and say, hey, this is the reason I got promoted is because I moved to development, that it's created this um, this uh, exact situation that you were just complaining about, the testers are somehow treated as second-class citizens. I don't think it's actually true. I think that the problem with testing is more legacy than it is current. I mean, in, in development at Microsoft, you've got people who've been in development for, for dozens of years, and, and they're able to mentor the developers, you know, past these career hurdles. And we don't have enough of these senior mentors in testing uh, uh, to serve that purpose. We have some, and we have, you know, maybe a dozen, maybe two dozen partner-level people in testing at Microsoft, and that's not enough to pull up the, the 10,000 or so testers that we have in the company. Wow. Although it's a it's a vision just to imagine having ten thousand testers. <laughs> yeah, it, it staggers me. Uh, so, sometimes my car won't even go into work when I start thinking about those sorts of things. <laughs> but yeah, what's I mean? The, the real question there is, what's the ratio to testers to developers? So this is, I think, is uh, is a very interesting phenomenon. If you look at a company like Microsoft, we claim, and many groups actually have a near one to one dev test ratio. Right. And then you look at a company like Google, who who is a company I actually think is doing a, a good job of of testing, uh, and they have something I don't know. It depends on who you talk to at Google, but let's average the ones I've heard over the last couple of years about ten to one uh, developer to tester ratio. And I don't think that either is is the right mix. Um, I think what the problem with ours is one to one. You think, oh wow, you know that's a lot of testing. It's also a lot of lazy developers, to be perfectly honest. I mean, our developers are they know we have great testers. They know our testers can code. So do they really have to do that extra checking? Do they really have to run that static analyzer? Do they really have to do that code review and, and, and peer checking of their code? Not really, because the testers are going to bail them out. And, and they throw a lot of stuff over the wall that just has too many bugs in it. Whereas at Google, because they don't have that, that huge uh, tester pool behind them, they, they have no choice but to do more unit testing and to be a little more careful in, in development. So I haven't really dug in deeply into, uh, you 
Google and, and Microsoft to, to really understand how this is causing a problem, but it's something I worry about. I, I don't think we have it right. I think somehow we need to get this balance somewhere in between where, where we understand the developer's role for testing and we understand the tester's role for testing. You know, what things are the developers going to check for? What types of tests are they going to run that testers can just take credit for and assume we're done? And then what things do the developers specifically not have to worry about because they know they're going to be handled in test? It's these questions, the answers to these questions, that will ultimately lead us to the right ratio. And I feel like it's going to be somewhere in between what Google and what Microsoft are currently doing. I want to just take a minute to uh, bring you a message from our sponsor, Telerik. Our friends at Telerik are working hard as usual to bring you exciting new stuff for your .NET toolbox. How about two brand new control suites, RAD controls for WPF and RAD controls for Silverlight. That's right. If you started building next generation applications, you now have UI components with Telerik quality and Telerik reliability. Both product lines are derived from the same code base, and share the same API, so transition is seamless. Uh, they have many improvements in the other robust suites for ASP.NET, AJAX, and Windows Forms also, as well as the intuitive reporting tool. But product alone isn't everything. To jumpstart your projects and help you easily get up to speed with these great tools, Telerik has got a couple of unique training resources, the Telerik Interactive Trainer and Telerik TV, of course, which I'm the host of. Now that's what I call summer heat. Go check out all the details at Telerik.com, T-E-L-E-R-I-K.com. And if you happen to run into those guys, say thanks for supporting .NET Rocks. I take it then that you are a fan of test-driven development and continuous integration and all these great tools that we use today. But on top of all that, what you're saying, I think I hear what you're saying is, that's not enough. That, yeah, you might you might check in software where every unit uh, returns the correct value when given a correct input, but uh, we need to. There are so many permutations of input, and software is so complex that you really need to have humans sitting down and and uh, and beating on it. And is that's a fair assumption, right? Well, it's actually worse than that. I mean, yes, the number of permutations of input is is infinite for all practical purposes, probably countably infinite, but that's, yeah. Doesn't doesn't make me feel any better. Because everybody knows um, input is evil, and if you want your software to break, just let the users have at it for a while. Right, because there's there's more to it than just the input. There's operational environment. Sure. There's user data. There's stored state. There's so many different things yeah. that the developer doesn't even have access to right. on their machines that we do in the tester lab. And I don't think we've got that completely sorted out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, I think I heard. I've been talking to my brother about this because. Uh, if you think, don't think for a minute that the user isn't going to input the craziest stuff inside, uh, any kind of input box or any, you know, any given, given any opportunity to input anything, the user is going to go there. Yes, they are going to do the stupid thing. <laughs> and if it's a security, you know, it has security ramifications, they're going to do it on purpose. So right. um, you, the, you, you can't really predict the user. So, so that's the second part of your, your question was yeah. we will always need manual testing. And, and not just testers doing automated testing, but we will always need eyes on the screen, fingers on the keyboard, you know, brain in gear while we're testing. But on the other hand, I do want to see developers 
do more testing. But it's not, I don't think these buzzwords of, and, and these zealots out there about test-driven development, you know, you must write your test first. There is something far more important than that. And that is developers understanding something about testing. And, and this is the thing that keeps me up at night. You know, we have technical fellows and distinguished engineers at Microsoft that design these features, and we code them simply because they tell us to. And these people don't really understand software testing. And a lot of our, you know, lead developers don't understand software testing. They write themselves into circles without even understanding why. So before test-driven development is developers who know something about testing. Because I think a lot of the test-driven development I've seen, uh, you know, yeah, you can do test-driven development, but if you don't understand testing, the test cases are not any good. So I think what we really need, what would make the hugest impact on the industry is teaching the people who design and write our applications more about software testing. Well, let's, they don't let's actually give uh, the listeners some nuggets here. Uh, about what they don't understand about software testing. What's the biggest thing people don't understand about software testing? Developers. Well, it's not what you were talking about earlier about inputs and and which inputs and uh, the fact that inputs are are infinite. I, I think everybody sort of understands that. I don't know if people really appreciate it and do anything about it, but I think they understand it. But I think it's that, you know, any... In fact, I think it's about, you know taking away some of these common um, things that people use to support their testing, like code coverage. So if, if all developers understood that, you know, you could have 100% code coverage and your software could still have lots and lots of bugs in it. Yeah. Right? So, so the first nugget is what, what constitutes a failure? What will cause the software to fail? Well, it's got to be the right input that hits the software when the software is in a specific software state, consuming real user data, and in a specific operational environment. The failure will depend on those four things. So when you're testing software, you've always got to take into account those four things, input, state, data, and and environment. And if you don't don't control one of those four things, then, you know, the the chances that you see a bug really is just chance and not, not something that you purposefully forced. So thinking about maybe just general code coverage is one thing, but uh, I mean, the, obviously the unit tests have got to fall in place with the developer. It just seems like that's something they've got to do. Uh, we had a great conversation recently. I think it was with uh, Michael Feathers who was saying, you know, the main value of writing unit tests is not the tests themselves, but the thinking that goes into building that test, making your code more testable and thinking about what the possible problems are going to be. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But I think that that developers are trying their best to do that right now. But I, I think there's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of testing theory that most developers have. Uh, the fault is largely at, at universities. I mean, where people learn to code is mostly in universities. It's, it's creeping into high schools and middle schools now, which is nice to see. Uh, and we don't do much teaching of software testing at, at universities. And, and, you know, I did it at Florida Tech and and it's sort of, you know, struggling down there now without me. Uh, in fact, Steve Ballmer uh, publicly threatened to fire me just so I would go back to teaching testing and start sending, sending <laughs> awesome. students. You're starving so, uh, Microsoft of testers because you're no longer down there teaching. Exactly. Yep. So 
So, um, and I took that, I, I took that as a compliment. I'm not sure it was meant that way, but I took it as a compliment. <laughs> How often can you be threatened to be fired by the CEO and turn it into a compliment? Um, so, so I think there's a basic fundamental education of, of what to do in testing. I also think there's a basic fundamental, uh, uh, disagreement between developers and testers. I mean, not a disagreement is the wrong word, but disconnect on where the developer's responsibility for testing begins and ends and where the tester's responsibility for testing begins and ends. Because yeah. I see, particularly at Microsoft, where we hire very developer-like testers. We even call them software development engineers and test. Uh, they end up retesting a lot of the stuff that's tested in the unit test anyhow. And, and that's a huge waste of time. Um, and, and so what are we doing about that? I think one of the things that the entire industry can do is really pay attention to the value of every single test case. It would be really nice if we ran a test case and knew this test case added, you know, X amount of information to our entire knowledge about this software's failure profile. Yeah. And and we don't know that now. We will testers will spend a week simply retesting what the developers did in unit tests and not really understand that they didn't add any value. And then for another week, they'll, they'll run some tests and they'll find some bugs. Now they're adding value. They're testing things that weren't tested before. But how do we know? How do all those test cases fit into this nice little pattern of this one added value, this one didn't, and then learning from that so that we can write more of those test cases that add value? We don't, we don't stop and learn enough from our testing in order to improve it next time. So instead of code coverage, it feels almost like test coverage. Are we covering the things that need to be tested? Right. Are we ta- covering all the testable points? And that uh, that includes input, that includes state, that includes data, that includes environment. And, you know, how much of that has to do with code coverage? Actually, a very small right. portion of it. Well, now I start thinking about things like cyclometric complexity. We're driving that down to make code more testable rather than increasing sophistication of tests to deal with complex code. I don't think there's been a connection between cyclomatic complexity and testability. No? Um, no. I, I think that cyclomatic complexity is a complexity of, of control structures within code. It doesn't take into account state. It doesn't take into account data. It doesn't take into account operational environment. And those three things alone are the key contributors to the complexity of software testing. So by definition, it's only partly applicable. But I, I think I get to your point here, which is the code's not all the problem here. The stuff we're not testing is the operating environment we're running in. Yeah, the code operates in an environment where it consumes data from databases. Well, that's not part of the code coverage and complexity metrics. It operates, you know, it it it, it gets resources from the environment. It calls DLLs that, that aren't part of the code coverage uh, mechanisms. Uh, it's, you know, it, it, it's a lot more complicated than the metrics will, will tell us now. I mean, some of those things are important. I'm not telling you to ignore code coverage. Right. I'm telling you to, to measure it and then realize how little it's telling you. It sounds like that, that's the low-hanging fruit. And what you're, what you're saying is these are the things we're not thinking about. We need to get beyond the low-hanging fruit right. because there's a lot of stuff high in the higher branches of the tree, and we're ignoring them right now, and, it, and it's costing us. I mean, if you've ever seen me give a public presentation, one of the things I like to do more than anything else is run through a litany of bugs. You know, not just talk about bugs, show the screen snapshots, people laugh, and, and you know, we've got a, a mapping program that, that takes you on a 1,600-mile route to only go 40 miles, and people laugh and think that's funny, and <laughs> and. Um, 
we need to do a lot more of this analyzing bugs and doing more than just laughing at them, but saying, you know, why did we write this? How did we write this? And why didn't we notice it earlier? You know, we're, we're inserting developers are writing bugs quietly. You know, there's no bells going off saying, ooh, you just wrote a, wrote a bug, you just wrote a bug. Right. And, and those bugs are quietly staying in the process until far too long. And the longer they stay in the process, uh, the, the more expensive they are to fix. And then all we do is fix them. Why don't we celebrate these bugs? Why don't we say, look at this bug? It stayed in the, it, it was written, it was reviewed, it was tested, it was released, it was used, and it was still there. Let's right? respect the bug. Let's respect the bug, man. <laughs> that is one heinous bug. Well, I think about this out-of-band software patch that Microsoft did recently to operating systems going all the way back to Windows 2000. And there's a bug I really respect. Wow, that problem has been there for eight, nine, maybe ten years and just got found now. Like, let's celebrate the tester that turned that one up. Oh, we should, we should promote the tester. We should, you know, we should and have an entire company meeting around that bug. Look at this bug. Worship this bug. And let's never write another one like it again. Yeah. Right, and and we don't do enough of that, enough of that learning. I think somehow, you know, bug demos in pubs while drinking beer. Yeah, somehow that is the future of software. Dude, I am. You are my hero. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about drinking beer in pubs. It is all about it, man. (laughs) Man, oh man. Uh, Yeah, I'm a big fan of Visual Studio Test, and I somewhat feel like I'm alone out there. How is that product? You work on this product, right? I work on this product. So, so now in 2008, Visual Studio 2008, we released, you know, web test, load test. I'm glad you're a fan because I think those features absolutely rock. Um, but, but it's not that uh, poorly known. We've got a lot of customers that are using that tool um, every single day. But for Visual Studio 2010, um, which will ship in a year or so, uh, we are definitely up, upping the ante, and I think you can you can let me show you sort of talk about a couple of the guiding metaphors that we have in the design of the new tools that are coming out. The first is um, one of my pet peeves in software testing is that testers spend too much time going around trying to find information, trying to find where the requirements are documented, trying to find code coverage metrics, trying to to find past test cases, trying to figure out where the automation sits in the lab and, and how to configure it. They, they do a lot of stuff that doesn't have anything to do with testing. Wouldn't it be nice if all of the development information, the source code, all the architecture artifacts, all the requirements artifacts, all the design artifacts were all in one place for software testers to be able to write test cases based on? And wouldn't it be nice if a requirement, for example, changed that all the test cases that were trying to test that code that is governed by that requirement would turn red so that we know we had to rerun them. So that's the sort of thing, one of the guiding metaphors for Visual Studio 2010 Test Edition is how to consume information from other parts of the process to help testers do their job better. Basically, and to give a, a warning to testers of you need to look here. I know stuff has changed over here. Exactly. 
And, and so the testers don't have to guess about that anymore. I mean, you get a new build, and the first thing a tester is going to worry about is, okay, what in the build changed? Right. And how does that affect the test cases that I, I currently have, have written and I've currently run? What, what information can I use to do that? So that's one of the things we um, are going to do. Much of that we are going to automate completely so that you'll see test cases turn yellow, red, and green based on, um, based on their changes. And you can just check them back in or write a rule that, has them automatically be tested every time you get a new build. So I really want to increase that information flow from development to testers and help testers really uh, capitalize on that information because I think that's part of this whole testing education thing I want to do too. You know, eventually testers are going to see, hey, this, you know, these architecture diagrams that these architects draw are actually useful for me. I can use them to generate test cases, and when they change, I can use them to resubmit test cases that that need to be retested. Uh, so so I'm, I'm a huge fan of providing testers with more useful and actionable information from other parts of the process. We were just talking to Michael Feathers about legacy code and inheriting legacy code. And uh, the first thing you need to do is a little bit of guerrilla refactoring before you can put some test harnesses around around code. Have you personally had inherited a legacy application that was just too difficult to, um, shall I say, to get to that point where it could be tested or, or was extremely challenging for some reason? So that's a good excuse for me to change jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's face it, legacy code sucks. Um, it, it would be, what was the old joke, the, the old nerdy computer science joke? Why did it take? God only seven days to create the universe. No legacy code. <laughs> right. No installed base. No legacy to, to screw up. Right. You want a planet there, put a planet there, supernova there. You know, awesome. There's no one to scream about, hey, you shouldn't have been able to do that. Supernova there. <laughs> Why not? So um, personally, no, I haven't. Um, I mean, and, and the groups that I work with, it happens. It happens all the time. And you know, even in Visual Studio Team Test, we've inherited all the web and load test, and we have to, and we have to build around it. It, it makes life a lot more difficult. It would be nice if everything was clean sheet development. We call, by the way, at Microsoft, we call that greenfield. Greenfield, the yeah. difference between greenfield and brownfield brown field. development. And I like to joke that well, we know what's making the field brown, <laughs> don't we? <laughs> So, so you just got that one, didn't you? It took me a minute. Yeah, that was a time bomb joke. Septic tank moment there for me. Time bomb joke. You're still your brain's still in the pub with the beer. <laughs> hey, I just want to give a shout out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, embed them right in your application, provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course, a great access report upsizing wizard, and all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActorReports.net from Data Dynamics. Go check it out now at datadynamics.com. Obviously, you're working on Visual Studio 10 and uh, Team Test Edition. There are, let's say, a huge number of developers out there using sort of uh, the tools that have been around testing and and uh, continuous integration and all these great things for a long time. 
you guys are fairly new to the scene. What can you tell us about the new tools that will uh, make it more attractive to the guys who are using, you know, all the all the all the tried and true tools? Well, I, I think that the tried and true tools are, you know, that's part of the kind of parity features that that we are are building for Visual Studio 2010. Um, I think we, there's a couple of guiding principles. There's the, you know reaching parity with the with the competitors, um, and and you have to be real selective to do that because I think some of the places where we could spend a lot of time reaching parity are tools that are going to uh, no longer have a useful shelf life in a couple of years. So we're trying to trying to make that call um, um, properly, and and then there's the tools that will make you know the the huge impact, um, and and so. One of the things we talk about all the time are tester and developer pain points, you know, pain points associated with software testing. And by far, when we talk to customers and when we, you know, test our own software, the one main pain point is bug reporting. You know, a tester finds a bug on their machine, they reproduce it, they write the perfect bug report, they send it to the developer, the developer tries to reproduce it, and no repro, right? Everything works properly on the developer's machine. And and this is and so then the bug goes back to the tester and the tester has to figure out, well, why isn't it reproing on the developer's machine? The tester's wasting a ton of time when they could be doing new testing, and the developer's wasting a ton of time when they could be fixing real bugs as opposed to, to trying to figure out this, this repro scenario. So we've got a, a bunch of recording and in totally invisible debugging that we think we're going to be able to say we can guarantee that you're going to be able to reproduce every bug. Uh, the developer's going to be able to reproduce every bug. on Totally the invisible okay. debugging. That's intriguing. Totally invisible debugging. Yeah. So I've got to be careful about how much I can talk about this. But this is a, a technology that we have for guaranteeing the reproducibility of the bug. So what we do is we gather all the bits of the environment that the bug, the buggy behavior depends on, and we package all of that up. There's some virtualization technology in here. There's some debugging technology in here. Send it off to the, attach it all to the bug report along with video recordings and, and key stroke, stroke capturing and, and all that sort of stuff. Send it off to the developer. The developer presses a button and, the, and they can watch the bug in action. And and so the you know the decreased amount of time what, what is this, somebody calls it te- developer tester ping pong um, you know the, the the balls not bouncing back and forth all the time and the debugging time is 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 then minimal yeah less time arguing over whether the bug exists and more time working on how to make it go away yeah I, I hate those sorts of arguments but you know I've spent the last six months walking around Microsoft looking for those arguments because I wanted to see if our technology works right. Right. So, you know, the, the, I, I go try to find these totally dysfunctional groups where the developers and testers absolutely hate each other. And I'm, I'm <laughs> actually kind of glad to see this now because, I thought, all right, this is a good test case for me. If the developers and testers hate each other, chances are this sort of ping pong game is responsible for it. And a lot of times it is. So, so we're trying to go for that, those sorts of big impact features um, and, and that, that will make the most impact for, for both devs and testers. Because it turns out that you sell a lot of testing tools by making developers happy. That that's just an incredibly compelling statement. Imagine a testing tool that could always reproduce the bug. Yes, and that is a compelling statement for testers, but it's even more compelling for developers. And and we're we're convinced that the testing tools of the futures are going to have to make both of those constituents happy. 
you know, if you write a test tool that makes testers happy, that doesn't, you know, do anything for developers, well, that's that's less valuable. It's not going to succeed because it takes both parties to actually fix bugs. It does indeed. You got to find them and they've got to be fixed. Testers can find all the bugs in the world. If you haven't found, empowered the developers to fix them, what good have you really done except increase your bug count? Well, and, and that's where you get that nasty tension is basically you've got a guy accusing you of being, of failing, and you're coming back and saying, you're crazy. Yeah, and that's not productive. And no. so the, if, if our tools make developers and testers get along better, like each other better, recognize each other's contributions more, and I think we've really done, we've really hit a home run with this. Well, it's a long way removed from, you know, more unit testing. That's a different way of thinking about the problem, that's for sure. It, it is. I mean, more more unit testing is, is a good thing only if it's the right sort of unit testing. And I think these tools over time are going to lead us to that. Um, you know, if, 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 the, if the tool is not finding actionable bugs, we should be able to see that it's not finding actual bugs and either throw it out or reconfigure it so that it does. That's interesting. I like the idea of actually rating tests that would tell you how many times this test has found a bug. And, and imagine how far we could take that in the future. If we're able to say, all right, these tests find bugs. Well, these tests apply to features that look like this. So whenever a feature that looks like this is written in the future, these tests should automatically find that feature and test it themselves. It would be nice if the test cases themselves we're feature aware. They know what they can test. They know what bugs they're good at finding, and they find parts of the application that they automatically apply on, right? A bunch of little nanobot test cases crawling all over your application looking for places that they apply. This is the future I want. All right, now you're frightening me. (laughs) (laughs) You just don't have enough beer, man. That's it. (laughs) Imagine having this conversation in a pub. You'd be enthralled. (laughs) Dude, there's nanobots in my computer. But it's a very different way of thinking about the problem, the idea that tests would find the best scenarios for them to work in, or just the whole idea that this test that I created would apply to more than one thing. Well, we don't have that situation now. I mean, let, let me take, let me, um, let's do a little Microsoft gossip, shall we? Um, the exchange group at Microsoft, those guys can test, man. They, they have built some of the coolest test infrastructure, uh, some of the most awesome sexy tools that you can imagine. And and over the years, Exchange has really benefited from this. You know, the, the, the release quality improvements that we've experienced in Exchange have been some of the most um, dramatic in the company. And and so we get all these, you know, groups at Microsoft that look at what Exchange is doing and say, man, we'd like to adopt that stuff. Um, but they can't. You know, the, the test, the, the idea of reusable tests is an oxymoron. You know, this test runs on this computer using this automation infrastructure against this application, and dude, that is it. You try to move that test into another environment, and you may as well just start over from scratch and and rewrite the whole thing because it's just not going to work. That is a problem that we absolutely have to solve because I'm convinced that on this planet, everything that that can be tested has been tested. Somebody's tested everything. We just don't store our test cases so that they can be reused. We don't write them to be reused. We don't, we don't have reusable test environments. You know, the, over the next couple of years, you know, applying techniques like 
virtualization and the, you know, under the covers invisible debugging technology that we're going to be releasing in Visual Studio 2010, we ought to be able to identify what this, soft, what this test case needs to execute, provide it that, and let it go, right? I like to think about this as environment-carrying tests. So the test case will carry along the environment that it needs to execute so that it can go from machine to machine to machine to machine and execute. The second part of this is making the test aware of what it's capable of testing so that it can recognize, ah, that's an interface I know about. Let me run myself there. Wow. Yeah, no, he's still blowing my mind. It's just, it's thinking about testing at a very different level. Hang on, I gotta get some scotch here. <laughs> uh, it's I don't morning. scotch for this conversation. This is a bourbon or beer conversation. Wow, okay. You might actually blow a gasket, dude. So, uh, so you're, you're a partaker of bourbon then? Dude, I'm from Kentucky, man. That was in my, 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 the breast milk I had when I was an infant. You know what I found in, in Europe, just to go off on a tangent here, they, the only bourbon they seem to have in Europe is either Four Roses or Jack Daniels, which is, re, you know, admittedly not really bourbon. It's, it's not a bourbon. It's got to be distilled within the borders be of Ken- Kentucky, Kentucky to be a bourbon. Yeah, so Tennessee whiskey. Every once in a while, you'll see a bottle of Maker's Mark, which is yeah, you know, Or wild good. turkey. And, and wild turkey is sort of the, you know, the shelf stuff I grew up on. I think we called it medicine when I where I come from. I want some Knob Creek or some Woodford Reserve, you know. Ah, uh, Woodford, yeah, you get that on on airplanes. Try yeah. Elijah Craig next time you get a chance if you want a nice fine bourbon. I have tried Elijah Craig and it is awesome. It is very good. Highly recommended for one of some late night testing endeavor for you, Elijah. And an app with bugs. <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, you know, I am staying away from bookers, however. That stuff will peel paint off your uh, car. <laughs> we have a we have one rot gut called Old Granddad. Old Granddad. Oh, you got to stand up to drink that stuff. Dude. <laughs> all I have to say. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's it. So where are we in the conversation? Do we uh... let let let's do a little summary? Let's kind of paint a picture because I, I I am excited about the future of software testing in a way that I haven't been excited in the past. I mean, okay. you know, we we we've already talked about this kind of legacy of software testing being this second class kind of citizen, and developers aren't really sure whether to fear us or respect us. Um, and, and what we really need is we need to be invited in to be a full-fledged member of this software project that we have. And, and I think in order to do that, we're going to need to contribute far more fundamentally. We can't just find bugs and throw them over the wall, no matter how enjoyable those bugs are, no matter how much fun they are to, to find, and no matter how much they embarrass software developers. We, we have to get to the point where we're contributing more. It's not about finding bugs. It's about fixing bugs. It's about, here's a bug that we found. Now, let's figure out how to prevent this, right? How to find it earlier, how to find it so much earlier. You know, can we get software testing to be like spell checking is now in Word, that the actual moment that the bug is written, we're able to find it at that point, right? This needs to be the focus of software testers. Not necessarily better ways of finding bugs, but I'd be happy with just learning more from every single bug that we find to make the development process run smoother. So, so testers who, who are willing, aren't willing to contribute in this more fundamental way, 
uh, for, to software projects in the future, I think will sort of go out of fashion. These late-cycle heroics and testers who are married to this idea of being late-cycle heroes, I think that's, you know, Christmas tester past, whatever, <laughs> some kind of sort of Scrooge thing. Um, I, I think that in the future, we need to contribute much more fundamentally. And, and I think that the tools that you'll see from Visual Studio and a lot of the technology and techniques that we're going to be releasing through our books and blogs uh, are going to be focused on this new future. Yeah, if we could have the end of death marching, that would be fine with me. Yeah. Well, you know, you've uh, piqued our interest in the tools that are the tools that are coming out. I know you can't really say all that much about them, but uh, it does sound like it's worth looking into. I'm intrigued. All right, well, I'd be happy to give you a demo over a beer sometime, guys, when you're in town. That sounds good. Or a, or a bourbon, or a Maker's Mark, or a Woodford Reserve, perhaps. As long as it's an or and not an and, because therein lies problems. Therein lies real problems. <laughs> Yes, it is a finite set. Uh, James, before we go, is there any uh, uh, some resources that you want to call out to? Uh, your blog, obviously. Uh, tell us, uh, give us some places where we can go read more. All right. Well, the first place is my blog, blogs.msdn.com slash James underscore Whitaker. Or I'm sure if you look me up using your favorite search engine, you'll find me as well. Uh, the books that I've written, the How to Break Software series, and I'm writing a new book. Just signed a contract with Addison Wesley. I have a book on manual testing. It's going to be called something like exploratory testing, and it's going to come out sometime in the spring. So, so watch for that. Excellent, James. Thank you very much, guys. I really enjoyed it. All right, we'll have to uh, we'll have to share that Woodford sometime. It sounds great. Awesome. And until then, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 